Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST-95, the Das Dahmen record, Jupiter Eye. I'm really happy to be talking about Das Dahmen again, and it's their first full-length that we've covered. I'm super pumped, and Brent, we've got some amazing special guests. Yeah, we do. We've got Brian Long, who worked a radio promo for SST. We've got Lyle Heisen, the drummer from Das Dahmen, and we've got Jim Walters, back on the podcast, who was the yeah. uh, singer-guitar player in Dost Dahlman. Yeah, nice dudes, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it last time we were we had Dost Dahlman. Uh, the last episode was their self-titled EP, but do you know that Lyle used to apparently have like a gong with him on stage? I read that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. We should have, we got to have him on again and ask him what was the gong, <laughs> <laughs> what was going on with the gong? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Gongs are awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what you should do with a gong, right? Hit it. Bang a gong. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, hey, before we get into the Das Dahmen, and again, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to talk about them and get to the interview, but Brent, you probably have some spiels for the people. Should I give some Das spiels to the people? Yeah, but do you think? <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> That's a Scorpions reference. Dosh Spiels? Well, not the Dosh Spiels. When I was a kid, I had a live Scorpions record, and Klaus Main goes, Turn the lights on the people! And we used to just laugh so hard. <laughs> that sounds like Arnie telling us to go to get to the chopper. Yeah. Uh, I only have. A micro spiel. No, actually, I don't. I have a spiel and a recommend. Okay. Okay, I'm assuming you saw this, but in case you didn't, or in case our listeners have, haven't, Greg Prado has a new book, which he uh, seems to have, like, one a week, a new book every <laughs> week. Like, dude's super prolific. It is a, it, well, it's called Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Oh, yeah. I did not see that. Yeah. That sounds good. Relevant to the podcast for sure. Yeah, no doubt. I'll I'll be picking that up. Yeah, and then a recommend for you, Ryan. This is a recommend for you. Oh. Have you ever heard of the band DeLorean? No. Okay. I've I've only watched the DeLorean and its flux capacitor. Right. This is the band DeLorean. Okay. And the I'll just read you the sticker that came on the LP because you know how like a lot of these stickers that come are are kind of bullshit. They're hype stickers. They're man. hype stickers, and it says a cross between the Stooges and the Wipers, and it doesn't sound anything like it. You know, <laughs> yeah. This one's a pretty good description. Uh, the label's called Beyond Beyond is Beyond. Do you know the label? I do not. Okay, well, you should check them out. There's stuff on there you would definitely like. Uh, it says, Music for Heads by Heads. DeLoreans, the newest members of the freak, mu freak music family, are a bunch of long-haired Japanese 20-somethings playing Zappa-loving, Canterbury-inspired, blissed-out spiritual jazz rippers. That definitely sounds up my alley. That's cool. It and is. you know where I you know where I was last night? Did you, was last night Dweez? 
I saw the Dweez play Hot Rats last night. Okay, well, you're going you're to have to spiel about the, that. Let me just finish talking about this DeLorean's record. It's self-titled. Yeah, uh, the label's Beyond Beyond is Beyond. They have lots of cool stuff, which is kind of why this was on my... Well, the label's on my radar. Uh, DeLorean's weren't. They are now. This is, a, I think, their first album. The cover art is like... It looks like something out of Heavy Metal Magazine. Oh, yeah, that looks deadly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can check it out on Bandcamp. I will. Good recommend. Yeah. Yeah, uh, don't let me forget to talk about uh, the Dweez. Other than that, I w- want to talk about our five favorite garage rock singles. Oh, yeah, right. This is in reference to your kind of two things, your awesome blog post. If people skipped last week's episode, which they, I hope they didn't, but if they did... We were talking about your blog post, which is really great, by the way, Ryan. I've been, I, I don't have a lot of that stuff, but I was listening to the Running on Fumes comp this week, the Gearhead one. Good, right? Killer. Yeah. Uh, and then also in reference to the Dynamite Hemorrhage uh, latest edition that came out that kind of has a thing on singles. But before we get to our singles, Ryan, why don't you, why don't you spiel for the people? You want me to do a spiel and then we're going to do the singles? Yeah. Okay. So I only have two to mention. I wanted to mention for the people out there, uh, speaking of my blog, the last one was a blog on Homestead Records and a band that was on there called Live Skull has -hmm. got a new LP out called Saturday Night Massacre and folks should check that out. They are a New York noise uh, staple for me anyways. I think yeah, their that, their reunion kind of came out of the the whole BC uh, thirty five thing. It may have, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty limited number this LP, but and it's a Bandcamp thing, so it's like you know, fifteen bucks for the LP, thirty dollars shipping, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's worth it. It's art. It and it sounds good. So check it out. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention just seeing Dweezil Zappa last night because he played Hot Rats and a whole bunch of stuff. And I took my wife to it, and it's the third time that she and I have seen Dweezil Zappa. And she had, like, the perfect comment last night, for me anyways, which was, that's the difference between seeing, you know, just a band and insanely amazing musicians. And it's it's very true. Like, obviously, they have to be very proficient to play that music, uh, it's actually the fourth time I've seen the Dweez, and he's insane. He's he's a face melter of a shredder guitar player, but also a very tasteful player. He mm-hmm. he could play the whole time, right? But he leaves a lot of space for the other insane musicians with him. And just like his dad, his dad's totally underrated as a guitar player. Yeah. Oh, I know. And and I think I think the Dweez has got. I mean, he's. I think he has a lot of respect like people respect him as a player but he still kind of i think gets grouped in with his dad in the sense that you know they're known or you know frank was known for you know five funny songs but not the other 80 albums that he put out and i would not not to sound like too music snobby but i still think that he's probably one of the most important modern composers and there's just so much so much of a catalog there and amazing music like the dweez was pulling out some insane 
tunes that, you know, mid eighties Zappa stuff that honestly is not my favorite. A lot of, and mostly because of the production on those mid eighties albums, but, but just like craziness and the soloing, like you and I, have, we've seen a lot of music and you know that you can do a lot with the the blues scale, right? Right. These guys are so much deeper than just the blues scale and the the scales and melodies that they are playing over top of these um, compositions. That was just insane. I don't know. I would recommend anyone go see it like just to get your mind blown by some insane musicianship. Totally, man. I was watching a video on YouTube recently. Yeah, I was watching this drummer. I, I assume that he does this with many different artists. He was breaking down. He reads sheet music or whatever. He was breaking down uh, his attempt to play the black page Ooh. on the drums and like explaining, you know, the drumming in that song. And, you know, how Frank wrote that song is like kind of a challenge to Terry Bozio or whatever. Yeah, I think it was. And, uh, like watching this guy explain the, just how that drumming was written is just show just right there is enough to show you that Frank Zappa was a musical genius that he could, yeah, he could just write that shit on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's pretty insane. So I don't know. I'm still, it's funny going to see that last night and now we're going to talk about like our top five garage singles, which, you know. (laughs) It's pretty kind of, they're in comparison, they're kind of like Neanderthal bands, but still amazing music, right? It's, it can happen, it can happen anywhere. I hope our listeners know by now that you and I have, I think, incredibly eclectic tastes in music. You're a Zappa freak. I'm a metalhead. We both love garage rock. You know, I host a garage rock radio show. Hey, if it's good, it's good, right? That's right. Now, I just, before we get started, Ryan, I have to say the big four of Garage Rock, for me, didn't even make my list, but I have to give them a nod. And that's the Cynics, the Lazy Cowgirls, the Nomads, and the Chesterfield Kings. Love all four of those bands, but I chose my singles more for, these were like my party singles. These were the singles that got just played at every house party I had in the 90s. Yeah, I feel like my picks are going to be very, very predictable. In you know, When I think, I was like, okay, which are they? And I was like, oh, it's definitely these ones. But it's pretty, pretty darn predictable. And maybe for kind of the same reason, like these are the ones that you know people are going to pay attention to. Yeah. And I've got, I've got a ton of those... Um, singles by those bands that you just mentioned too also great actually less so for chesterfield kings yeah i never really went to them uh, but you in particular you were just saying we both like garage rock you are way more of a garage rock aficionado than i ever was i wouldn't say that mm, we, i don't know we i was both still buy it yeah true you know true but I, like i said when i when i list mine off you're gonna be like that's a little boring, but you know what? Whatever. Hey, we'll see. I didn't exactly pick the most obscure stuff either, man. I just picked my five. Mine were no brainers for me. So yeah, me too. Go. Okay. What, what should we do? I'll do one and then you do one. Okay. And this is in no particular order. 
you won't be surprised by this one, Ryan, because you know me. This one is by a Calgary band called The Vaughn Zippers. This is their first single. It's the first one I got by them. It's put out by Al Charlton, um, who was in The Vaughn Zippers. He owned this label, Rotoflex. Calgary had the garage rock scene in Canada in the 90s, I would say. They had, this label in particular had Curse of Horseflesh, Al's other great band, The Mance, Forbidden Dimension, Huevos Rancheros. And Al was in some bands in the 80s too. He was in a band called Riot 303, which was like a hardcore band who had four tracks on the first skate rock, Thrasher skate rock compilation. And they had a legendary 1982 single called Crowd Control. He was in uh, a band with Tom from Forbidden Dimension called Color Me Psycho. He was in an 80s uh, punk band called The Sturgeons. But I love the Von Zippers, and this is my favorite single by theirs. I probably didn't say which one it is yet. Mighty Red Baron is the A-side, and the B-side's the Von Zippers theme. And it's got the coolest, like, 90s artwork on it. It's a like a Ed Big Daddy Roth kind of take, isn't it? Yeah. Von Mernick is the, the artist. Awesome stuff. Love it. Right on. Good one. Give me one. Monoman mm-hmm. booze. Yep. Monoman booze. So this is a single on Estrus. It's got the song "Watch Outside" on it, which is one of the best parts of that film. Hype yes, on the grunge theme. Yep. Side two has Catalina on it, but most importantly for you and I, Brant, it has uh, the closer on side two is the song "Rumble," mm. and written by Link Ray. And this version of Rumble is reminiscent of the one that you and I used to play in our old band. We probably copped it from the Mono Men. Oh, I'm pretty sure we we did. Yeah. I'll do the Mono Men here too then. This is my Mono Men pick, Burning Bush. This is the, the single that started my obsession with the Mono Men. Uh, it's the first one I got. I got it before I got any of their LPs. It's got Burning Bush on the A side. The B side is like a tribute to the Nomads. It's got their song Ratfink a Boo Boo and uh, their cover of Don't Tread on Me, which is by like a 60s garage rock band. I can't remember the name of the band, but this this is totally a tribute to the Mono Men. I actually prefer the later lineup of the Minutemen when... Uh... Of the Mono Men. Yeah, what did I say? Minutemen. Oh, sorry, the Mono Men. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, Mark's right left the band and they got in Mort, like, you know, Wrecker and, and those albums. But this is a great single. Yeah, no doubt. All right, my turn. Yep. The Headcoats. The uh, single called I Can Destroy All Your Love. This is on Munster Records. And I Can Destroy All Your Love is the A-side. And you're going to see a theme here. But the B-side is Fatback, Hmm. also written by Link Ray. And, Brent, you might recall that song, Fatback, features prominently in this movie that you and I used to like called Road Racers. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so uh, that's why that single definitely sticks out for me. It's funny, you know, we've referenced referenced this before, but you and I played in a instrumental garage rock band in the 90s the b-side of this von zippers is instrumental uh the b-side of this mono men is instrumental and the b-side of my next single is instrumental it's this band i mentioned a couple weeks ago 
uh, Sugar Shack. I know you're a big fan of them. We both are. They're, oh, yeah. they're, their full lengths are all awesome, but this single, the A side of this single is just insane. It's called You Don't Mean Shit to Me. It's such an <laughs> awesome song. And the B side's a pretty cool, like, Comanche style uh, instro called Quintana. And it's on Estrus. Yeah. And uh, good... the, look at the cover, man. It's like a, again, a coupe style. It might even be coupe. Uh, Frankenstein. Alex Wald is the is the cover artist. Yeah, the artwork on these singles back then were pretty good too, right? Mm-hmm. Like very eye very eye catching, big time. So my next is a complete instro. It's Man or Astroman. Yeah, and this is the Mission into Chaos single. I got that one. It's got yeah. a cool story on the back, hey? Yeah, if I'm remembering well, right. But you're gonna again. You're gonna see a theme in my picks. So this this single has got the songs "Name of Numbers," "Of Sex and Demise," "Madness in the Streets," "Within a Martian Heart," and finally the song Brandt, "Point Blank." Yep. Which is another song that we used to play together. We played that when we opened up for Man or Astro Man. If I'm rem- yep. <laughs> remembering right, we asked yep. them if we could play it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, here is my next one. This was the party band for me. It's a band called the Dummies from uh, Lewisbury, Pennsylvania. This is on Get Hip. This is, came out in 1994. This is the single I I basically picked this up on a whim, and this is kind of kickstarted my garage rock thing. It's got one of those you know Get Hip inserts. And just looking at all these LPs, like I had to get all of them, you know, on the insert. Yeah. And they eventually put out a full length on Get, get Hip, which is all right. But this single, uh, the, the A-side in particular, I'm Gone, is just killer. Yeah, I remember you put them on a tape for me. So continuing on with the instro theme, I've got a split brand. Okay. A oh, yeah. Manor After Man, Huevos Rancheros split. A very, very popular single at my place back in the day. Man Rast Man is doing a mouthful of exhaust and rovers. Waveros Rancheros, another band from Calgary. They do the songs White Out and Wyoming and another Link Ray song, Hotel Loneliness. Oh, yeah. And every time I pick up a guitar to this day, I play that song, Hotel Loneliness. <laughs> the riff the riff is just so amazing and so simple like the link had it down right and huevos rancheros do a great version of that song on here and uh i believe the artwork on here is by by tom tom fives dare i say ryan the huevos version of hotel hotel loneliness is better than the link ray version oh yeah yeah they they slow it down and it's way better Yep. It's uh it's late era link that song is from too, right? Yeah. Uh here's my last one. This is a bit different because it came out way earlier than the rest of the stuff I picked. It came out in the eighties, but it's this band, The Screaming Tribesmen, on Citadel Records, the awesome Brisbane Australia band with Mick Madu on lead guitar and lead vocals. Uh this is for me a double A sider. The B-side's almost the A-side. It's Igloo and My True Love's Blood. 
just awesome. All hail the tribesmen. <laughs> yeah, they're good. And mine is maybe a bit different too, but I couldn't help pick this one out actually because i think it fits people may argue with me but it's the mud honey single touch me i'm sick oh it fits yeah i think so right yeah and the b-side on that is sweet young sweet young thing ain't sweet no more and so that's a that's amazing a amazing single oh thanks yeah i thought you were gonna slam every one of my picks oh, dude i have all of those singles those are <laughs> awesome picks <laughs> yeah Good one. Brant. Yes. Now that we went through all these singles, I feel like it's time to look into the Jupiter eye. <laughs> Deep into the Jupiter eye, Brant. All right. Shall we? Yeah, let's kick it over to the interview. History lesson, part one. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by Jim Walters, Lyle Heisen, and Brian Long. How's everybody doing? Thumbs up. All good. Doing, doing well. All right. So let's start with you, Brian. How did, how did you come into the picture? <laughs> I'll give you the short story. Sure. You can save a long story for another time, no pun intended. <laughs> um, I was at SST doing um, radio promotion in the mid, mid to late 80s and um, had played first off on an EP, the Ecstatic Peace release before it was on FST, played it in college radio, when I was on college radio. Okay. So I was familiar with the band and, um, and and a fan. So that's really how I, yeah. So I promoted, I promoted their record. Okay. And how long were you at SST kind of before, were you there by the time this album came out? I'm assuming you were. Oh, yeah. 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 I was there. Very early 87 is when I started. Okay. The beginning, just after the beginning of the year. So right kind of when the SST floodgates just opened right up. Completely. I was like employee number five or six or something. Actually, there was a few more because there was some in production. But yeah, it was, it was Ray Farrell and I doing, and, and, and Whitaker doing all of the promotion. Right. Yeah. And Lyle, remind us again how you came into Dos Domin. Did you know Jim and the rest of the guys from high school, or where did where did you guys meet up? I was in a band with Alec oh, okay. before Dos Domin, called The Misguided. That's right. And um, when uh, we uh, uh, broke up, uh, we were trying. Alec and I were trying to find a you know a, a singer guitar player, and uh, that's how we met Jim at NYU. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, they they were already together. I kind of came into their orbit. Uh, Lyle and Alex and uh, Dave Motama, they kind of had played in The Misguided, and they kind of had their own sort of world going, and then I kind of came into that. Now, this album, to me, is a, you know, you're, you're starting to change your style a little bit. You're maybe being, there's a little bit more of, I would say, a 60s rock influence, almost there's like some backwards guitar and also Lyle there's some interesting I don't know time signatures and song structures going on were you guys like jamming these songs a lot in practice or were you mostly playing them live I would say most of those were live but a few of those at the end we we uh, recorded just for the record 
I think a few of those, if I remember correctly, Jim, we didn't play live until after the record came out. And uh, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier. It's not like we demoed anything before we went in. Right. We just did a lot of practice tapes. And uh, that's yeah. that was our pre-production was just taking mm-hmm. practices and talking about them afterward amongst ourselves. So it was a pretty small orbit of uh, personalities discussing what, what should go where and how the song structure should be and things like that. And uh, for the better and for the worse, I would say, in hindsight. Were you talking about musical direction or was it was it just kind of whatever was happening was happening musically? I mean, we were definitely... Um, we were definitely aware of what was going on and what we were getting compared to. But at the same time, we always liked all these different kinds of music. So, I mean, I know that's a boring thing to say, but we definitely had a pretty diverse influence of records going on in our heads. So, I mean, this record, I think, genre hops the most. But uh, it wasn't like a super stretch that we'd have a backwards guitar solo i mean the first ep opened with a backwards song so um you know we were uh, we were always a little we were always in the into the chippy psychedelic 60s the who and the naz and all that kind of stuff yeah who who were you oh, getting yeah. compared to uh, at that point yeah yeah i guess uh who's could do solo asylum thing that was the most prominent at that point yeah which i i never fully got i mean there's probably some elements of that like definitely commonality but it, it seemed like it was a little more we were a, lo- a little more i guess heavy in some ways and psychedelic and kind of a little more left of center i think musically we're a little more experimental maybe yeah well, you... the comparisons are lazy and uh that was just the lazy comparisons that were being thrown at us you know i mean if you dug a little deeper if anyone was would spend the time they would hear that there was a lot of a lot of other stuff going on there what about the noisier parts of the band? In, People talk about Sonic Youth. I mean, just considering you're both from from New York, and I'm assuming you play together as well. Uh, yeah, because uh, yes, because as you know, as you, I'm sure you discussed uh, the first EP. Thurston helped us put it out, so that kind of hung over us, but not in a negative light. It was never anything because we weren't really squonkers. We weren't really noise full on noisies. There's a few. A few parts on the record that definitely go in that direction, but uh, that wasn't our, you know, we weren't sitting, we, we definitely were not sitting around jamming to Glen Bronco. Yeah. So. <laughs> Even though it's funny because we did sort of hang with that crowd at times, but it wasn't musically yeah. where we were at. Yeah, I'm sure the most obvious comparison that you probably got a bit after this was maybe Dinosaur Jr. That didn't really start until the third record. Yeah, they're not really super well known or maybe even just getting started at this point, probably. Yeah, I was trying to, maybe Brian knows, I'm trying to remember when uh, You're Living All Over Me came out compared to Triscodecophobia. Like, I was trying to remember that timeline, but I can't. can't Yeah, You're Living All Over Me came out in, like, in 87, um, actually before Triscodecophobia, no, like, yeah, before Triscodecophobia came out. It came, but it came out after Jupiter Eye. Yeah. That makes sense. Because then after after you're living all over me, it then shifted to to Dino. Yeah. yeah. I think Jupiter Eye came out in the spring, if I remember, of 87. Does that sound right, guys? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Now, you recorded this again at Fun City with Wharton Tears. Um, what do you recall about the recording sessions? 
or session? Was it was it more than one, or was it a you know a forty eight hour marathon? I think at most it was six days. That's what I'm trying to remember. How about you, Jim? What do you got there? Yeah, I kind of remember short days, but long, really long hours. Recording in the that is a basement studio with a brick. I remember that. Was that when his wife came down and yelled at us? Yeah, like, like why do you need to play so loud? <laughs> you guys aren't playing Madison Square Garden. <laughs> so, yeah, we definitely tracked at full rock uh, volume that day. Yeah, we were definitely still at the stage that we, in the studio, we play it full out like we're doing it live. You know, we, I don't think we had, like, we weren't, even though we had a lot of ideas, I don't think we were, like, very, like, studio-sophisticated at that, that point. Right. It was just kind of about capturing, like, the raw thing. Was there, like, a hit on this album, Brian, that you were trying to... Is there a song that, that you were trying to maybe sell more than others? I don't think you guys did a, a promo single or, or a video, did you? No, there was no promo single, but Gray Isn't Black, the first song on the record, was the song that was the, probably the easiest to digest. Yeah. And seeing it as the first song on the record, that's the one that, you know, radio tended to go for. But I remember I remember having conversations with radio programmers and, like, pointing them to other songs. I mean, there's a song on the record called Do, which is unlike anything else on the record. And it's a really cool, beautiful song. It's almost like the birds meet, I don't know, meet Husku Do or something, meet Hard Rock. And it's... Um, yeah, I remember talking to some stations about that song in particular because it was so unique. Yeah. I remember also one station, one guy was like going on about King Crimson and he thought Dom, Dom, Dom was a new King Crimson, <laughs> which is probably a nice compliment, right, guys? <laughs> Absolutely. And that was yeah. definitely in the wheelhouse. Yeah, well, uh, there's definitely some, you know, some pretty progressive drumming. Like, like I said, some of the time signatures are, to my ear, are pretty proggy almost. Yeah, I'd definitely say um, my heart was bigger than my chops. I was definitely uh, out of out of my comfort zone playing a lot of that stuff, trying to push that stuff. And and uh, Phil, the bassist, uh, he really pushed that stuff, and I loved it. And it was super challenging. And uh, you know, sometimes it works, and sometimes it's a little clumsy. But you know, that was definitely something we we liked to do. And um, again, no one was really telling us not to. You know, no one was like, you know, that section over there that's in like 13 over 7, maybe you guys shouldn't be trying to do that. And uh, we would just be like, let's just do that. How's that sound? Ask everyone in the room. Sounds fine. So, um, you know, we just kind of plowed ahead and uh, just did it. But yeah, the birds, that's a biggie, uh, a big influence throughout the whole band's career. And uh, especially, as Brian said, on Do, it really stands out and I, you know i don't think we've ever were compared to the birds but that was definitely one that we were really they were really champion of yeah the birds was a big one especially i know that time we were listening to a n- notorious bird brothers a lot and i think that was maybe our attempt at trying to aim something in that direction yep and uh, king crimson red that was always a big band a band record well i mean a lot of bands that kind of i guess came out of the the punk scene, for lack of a better term, or I guess at this point, maybe the indie rock scene, weren't really, they didn't really have 60s influences at this point. Now, you know, it's commonplace, but back then it was more the garage revivalists, like, you know, the Chesterfield Kings or, you know, the Cynics or these kinds of bands, you know. 
there wasn't really uh, it wasn't really something you know bands from the punk scene talked about classic rock influences yeah maybe it wasn't so cool like if you're kind of trying to be hip it's cooler to say you know I like um, uh, the cramps than yeah. to say uh, that you like uh, you know the strawberry alarm clock you know we like them both well I mean even the image you guys were were putting out I mean you you all have long hair at this point oh yeah yeah, oh yeah. So, like, who who would you have been playing with? Did you do any touring on this record? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there was that weekend in New York. We played the uh, Ritz with the oh Bottle yeah, Fossers and Red Cross, and then the next day we played CBGBs with uh, Scratch Acid. So that that kind of sums it up. Yeah, we <laughs> were just a. Uh, all over the map. I think uh, Brian remembered that we did the West Coast. We did with the Meat Puppets. Yeah, that was that was a very anticipated show because uh, Jupiter High had recently come out, and the Meat Puppets had put out Huevos or about to put out Huevos, if I'm not mistaken, and they were booked to play the Variety Arts Center, and um, Global got got Dylan to open up on that show and it was so we were all really at the office super psyched that we're gonna you know both fans are on the bill and see Doc Dominant in a really big room and their their you know only LA show on the tour that was you know it was uh it was a great show. I remember it being really loud. I remember the mix not being terribly good. <laughs> and um but I remember the power being great and I remember like thinking M C five because of the way the guys moved on stage. Uh, Alex and Jim kind of like threw their hair around and jumped around on stage, and I was like, "This is like the MC5." <laughs> yeah, it was we'll, it was great. We'll take that one. That's a, definitely oh, yeah. another good one for sure. And I think Brian or uh, Jim, uh, Jim, you might remember that was the tour. Then we have Terry Pearson with us, and when we drove back from San Diego, we drove down to San Diego to play at the Meat Puppets, and I think that's when we drove back and we got pulled over, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they obviously I was in a, you know, I was driving and I was worried because you know we were a rock and roll band whatever getting pulled over, and they made us open up the back of the truck, and when they saw equipment they were like oh, okay that's cool because they thought we were smuggling uh, uh, immigrants in the back <laughs> yeah. of the van. Oddly timely, but, uh, <laughs> but at the time, uh, but at the time we were I've never seen a cop happier to see a bunch of uh, musical equipment. <laughs> so uh, they let us go, you know. After after that, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Let's go on and rock. So that was that. I remember after the Variety Arts Center show, um, one of the guys from Ministry came up to me and went on and on, and told me how much he loved the show and how he wanted to do heavier music and he liked loved the power and everything that we were doing. And after that, I mean, I'm not saying that was the only inspiration but I did notice after that that ministry did get remarkably heavier hmm. so maybe I don't know maybe we were some small influence in there somewhere did it would have been cool if they started sounding like the birds but we'll take it <laughs> <laughs> I know right that would be awesome <laughs> did you get a lot of enthusiastic responses like hometown shows for example did did a lot of people come out and did you have like a strong local fan base yeah 
<laughs> New York is tough. I mean, we always, uh, you know, New York's a tough town. You know, if you're from the town that television and the Ramones that are from, it's uh, it, it was sometimes uh, a little tough to break break the kids. And uh, you know, we did okay. You know, we definitely we had some good we had some good shows over the years. But uh, uh, it, you know, it was sometimes out of town where we would have we felt we were getting better responses and people were more excited to see us. Instead of yeah. just the poor dudes they see all the time. Right, yeah, that's for sure. And so I will say, um, I thought we did have a kind of a cool thing going at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Yeah, Maxwell's was good. Yeah, and then, you know, some of the other Jersey shows. And, you know, it was, we, you know well, I mean, we toured a lot, so we weren't yeah. super uh, dependent on the New York shows being make or break. Except uh, Brian might remember the one we did for a New Music Seminar. Was that that year, Brian? No, it was the year before where you played in the hotel room. Oh, I think yeah, somebody told me this story. Yeah, I think I think Mike Whitaker. Was yeah, yeah. When he is on, yeah, that was that was pretty pretty awesome. <laughs> pretty ballsy. Let's let's get Doc Domin up with all their amps and drums into a hotel room, <laughs> and the only thing that didn't fit was their hair. <laughs> <laughs> I remember at one point someone I think we had like amps on the bed and someone was like I can't hear the vocals we're like really I mean come on <laughs> we're playing a hotel room what do you expect but uh, I definitely remember driving into the hotel with the van full of gear and just being like we're going to be a minute and just having to load out everything and uh, and uh, it, was, it was pretty pretty exciting you know I mean it was definitely Four bands playing everywhere, like got um, South by Southwest. are playing everywhere now, so you know that's that's going full volume. No, no, no talk about playing lower. Of course, no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, discussion a... about. Maybe we should turn it down. How did we? I guess we brought our practice space PA in there. That's what I was thinking the other day. But if we were playing like there's never. I never remember a conversation like, should we turn it down a little bit for this gig or. It was just kind of like if we were playing, it was going to be full on. The sound man was always wrong. So it was like, if he was like turning the guitars down, we're like, nope. So, you know. Didn't Maxwell have some kind of thing on their board, the mixing boards, like the Doc Dahlman level, than all the other <laughs> yeah. bands? Yeah, Andy, Andy Peters and Maxwell's had a tape of each of the loudest bands, and then we were at the top. <laughs> and, um, you know, a couple of times we did tour with the sound man, and um, um, so that was that was awesome when we got to do those things because uh, they would work with us. And, uh, yeah, we had Terry Pearson who did sound for uh, Sonic Youth for a while and uh, a very long time. He did our sound like, at least one tour. And, um, mm. yeah, he got to say constructive things like, well, maybe your tom shouldn't be covered with tape. <laughs> and I was like, really? Because I just, you know, I just had them covered with tape from recording and just left them. Yeah, so I remember that was a big uh, revelation. So it was great <laughs> having them. Whenever we could find one, we went through a lot of sound men at one point. It was, it was a, I think it was not a, a very rewarding job. So <laughs> yeah, we were kind of knocking them out like Spinal Tap drummers. You know, <laughs> they would they would quit like in the middle of the tours and stuff. It was brutal. Probably <laughs> a, a little bit of uh, haggling with local club owners, I'm guessing, over pushing yeah, the PA. Yeah, sure we weren't super cooperative, you know. So Terry we listened, but I don't know what the other kids, we did such good listening. 
Yeah, I remember we played some show. I think it was in California at like a, a club that was like in a mall or something. And I remember mm-hmm. they had like a sound meter, like you couldn't go above a certain level. And I remember Terry discreetly put a piece of uh, tape over the sound meter so it wouldn't <laughs> register the volume as, as much. It's pretty funny. That's a professional. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. What kind of backline were you were you bringing with you at this point, Jim? Oh my God, so much stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I think um, well Lyle had his his big red premier kit. Um, oversized oversized drums, it was ridiculous. Yeah, they sounded awesome. And um, I think Alex and I each had like a four twelve cabinet. Um, I I think I had like a Marshall head, and Alex had like a. He would always have like oddball stuff. I think he had like a Laney head or an orange head or something. And Phil had this uh, eight string bass right, with yeah. like this custom cabinet. And it, we would just would play like blazingly loud. The bass is pretty overdriven even on this album. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was listening to it the other day for the first time in many decades. And uh, some of the mixing is, I mean, Warren is amazing. And he really just let us get up and go and go and go and go, but uh, some of the like some of the tones, it's kind of insane sounding. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what instrument that is at one point. So uh, <laughs> it's definitely a, a wild a wild ride. But uh, yeah, Wharton uh, Wharton was definitely not a uh, as a drummer. I'm surprised he didn't uh, flag me more on a couple of things. But uh, he just would let us rip. Uh, that was it. I have to give him a lot of credit. He did. He was very, very patient with us, and also did. You know, gave us the freedom to literally do whatever we wanted to do. And are I you definitely good? feel it's like the most, the most Phil record of the three that he yeah. on. Like it's got. I agree. Like, yeah, really? it was. Uh, I think a couple of the song. I think the two instrumentals were ideas that Phil had had for quite a little while. And, uh, and the girl with the hair, right? That's Phil. Yeah, yeah, he sings the vocal on that. And I know he was a big part of... Well, he he and I... I, th- I think a little bit Alex, too. I, I remember more Phil and I undo the harmonies he was always, like, pushing to make it more, you know, take it further, make more harmonies, more, you know, melodic. And so I, he, I think, yeah, this definitely... I would agree with Lyle. This, I, when I hear this, I definitely... It was probably the Domin record that had the most of Phil's influence on it. Yeah, he's definitely that way up front in the mix, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, and he Phil did the cover, girl, right? Yeah, Phil did the cover with his uh, girlfriend, Debbie. Oh, okay. Now, I was going to ask. Yeah, it was supposed to be like a cubist chair or something. Uh, I, didn't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't even understand it. <laughs> I was, <trying laughs> I was thinking the same thing when I looked at it the other day. <laughs> I was like, it looks like a cut in the top right for promos that used to be on vinyl when we were kids. <laughs> right. That yeah. Whole... <laughs> yeah, that was uh, supposed to be like bursting through the picture or something, I'm not sure. Hey, Jim, who's doing that, the mumbly vocal, like, talking on do? Is that Phil uh, or is that you? No, that was me. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of like the spoken mumbly thing. Yeah, the yeah, spoken that word, me. that's you? Okay, cool. Yeah. And who's Don Standing? He gets a special thank you on the uh, back. He was my uh, uh, my roommate. He was my roommate in college and also in Queens when uh, 
Brian, did you live with Don when I lived with him, or were you after Don? I did not. not Sorry, I, I have mute Don. Yeah. I did not. I did not. Okay, yeah, so for a while I lived in Queens, and uh, Don was my roommate there, and then Brian was also my roommate. I think that order is all messed up, but, yeah, so he's just a friend, and he still takes photos. He takes fantastic photos. He uh, teaches photography at school in uh, Jersey and uh, puts out zines of, he actually puts out literal zines of photography. Now, he's a very talented young man, so okay. gentleman at this point. So <laughs> He went on the road with us a little bit, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He also was our a roadie for a couple of tours. Definitely okay. the uh, first SST one and maybe... I'm sure he was on the, the Jupiter I one, yeah. But yeah. we didn't do... Like, we did a lot so much touring, I don't even remember per album. I just... They all kind of blur together. You know, we'd almost try to do two tours per album. We tried to make it out to the West Coast. We tried to, and, and then around the third album, we would start doing Europe. So we were, uh, we were definitely road dogs. Yeah, I was going to ask oh, yeah. if you did any like, overseas touring. It was really oh, yeah. disappointing when, when Jupiter I came out. I remember Chuck Dukowski telling us we didn't get a overseas uh, booking agent. But uh, by, but by uh, Triskaidekaphobia, we got one. Yeah, and I remember looking, um, we were looking through some stuff, and one of the Das Diamond tour shirts had the, the European tour dates, and it was like, I think it was like 26 shows in 28 days or something like that. Wow. Oh yeah, no, all, all our touring was madness. Yeah, <laughs> in adult in adult eyes. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually showing that to someone um, here in Nashville, like a, a young artist, and they were complaining that they had to do like four shows in a row or something. And they showed them a picture of the tour dates, and their <laughs> eyes kind of just popped out of their head. Yeah. Now, Brian, so you're are you from New York? St. Louis. Okay. How did you start working at SST? Um, when I was at college radio, University of Missouri, I was a, a big SST fan. Um, so I would always take the phone calls from Ray Farrell when he uh, was promoting records and became, uh, you know, basically an acolyte and did interviews with all the bands who came through and on the air. And, um, and then, uh, I mean, I'll give you a long answer, but again, I won't sort of belabor it. But yeah, um, they were looking to um, bring someone in just to do radio promotion um, in early 87. And I had moved out to L.A. after graduating um, in 86 and was working for Spin Radio. um, And that was falling apart. And um, I had done a project with the Meat Puppets on Spin Radio. And so, again, was in, in, in the SST orbit a bit in uh, late 86, and Ray hit me up in early 87 and said, hey, I'm looking to bring someone in for radio. you got to come down and talk to uh, Greg and Chuck. And that was uh, that was an interesting experience, <laughs> going down to <laughs> in, in the conference room with Greg and Chuck. So that's, that's how I got in there. Okay. Now, what would your primary duties have been? Are you... Like, are you mailing the albums out to radio and then following up with them? Yeah, I mean, there's you know the database and keep a track of of stations and organizing the mailings by um, what stations would probably play what songs because that's the fee being an independent label was we were very judicious about our our money and promo spend, so we would. I would create a list of of what stations were A stations, B stations, C stations. Um, 
and the A stations would get all the SST stuff. They would get, you know, Elliot Sharp's records. They would also get Das Damen and then send them out to those, to the stations. And Das Damen was a, you know, a college radio band. So they, they went to, you know, the majority of the radio station. And Lyle was working at CMJ at the time, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And yep. so he was, he was on the phone with college radio stations getting reports from their playlist. Okay. And um, so I felt an intense pressure from Lyle to make sure <laughs> that Jupiter I was hyper promoted. <laughs> and um, but the record did well in college radio. I mean, SST was a golden label at the time. Yeah. Um, in eighty early eighty seven. Um, Ifin came out and hit number one on the college radio charts. And that was the first time a record on an independent label had ever been number one. Yeah, so it was just a golden, everything SST touched, a lot of things they touched, <laughs> SST touched, college radio just went bonkers for. And Doc Dumman was one of those bands that college radio... Were most college radio stations keeping charts at that time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, became, it was a part of the game. You know, if you're if you were a CMJ reporter or Rockpool magazine reporter, you had to every two weeks call in your top thirty-five records to people like Lyle, who was sitting at CMJ taking it all down, and then a chart would be compiled from the five hundred plus stations that had reported. And you know, for for us doing radio promotion, it became a bit of a litmus test. If the station was a reporting station to the trade magazine, then they were more worthy of receiving one of a limited number of promo copies than if they were not. Right. Now, when you say promo copies, what are we talking at this point? Is it still mostly vinyl? Yeah, it was vinyl, all yeah. vinyl. I mean, it's funny. Some stations would get spiffed some CDs for giveaways. <laughs> you know, like the band's coming to town and like, hey, we're going to promote the show. We'll send them a couple CDs. And, and that was a big deal. Yeah. So yeah, it was all vinyl. Because this did come out on all three formats, I believe, in 87. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Looking forward into the Das Damen catalog, Lyle, what, how does this one stack up for you? Oh, boy. Uh... I mean, I, I, I don't know. I really don't, I, I, it's very hard to be objective on these things. I mean, I just remember, of course, I just remember the, the, the bad things. You know, I just remember we didn't get a lot of, a lot of great press and, uh, we didn't get a lot of press. It was weird. I was even trying to Google some reviews of the record and we, I think, I don't know if Jim will agree, but I think we thought the record was going to be a big step forward and, um, it, it kind of was more like a, it was more like a, a baby step. You know, it wasn't, we didn't get the village voice again and we didn't get the times again. All those things that we got on the first record, uh, didn't happen on the, on this record. Of course, it has nothing to do with the music. You know what I mean? It's just like, we, we just thought it was the, you know, the cat's pajamas and we were just, well, why isn't everyone falling in line with like the last record? So, um, it was kind of, it, it was tough. I mean, I like listen, listening to the other day. I was like, yeah, we were definitely giving it a college try to, really mix it up and um i couldn't even imagine a band dropping a record like that these days yeah it's no so kidding. at times it's so bananas sounding yeah so it gets an a for effort jim where does yeah. it where does yeah. it fit into the catalog oh uh, you mean chronologically or no uh stylistically or personally for you preference wise um 
I mean, I definitely agree with what Lyle said. Um, it, it is kind of like a crazy record, so that's a, I kind of love that about it. Um, and I love the freedom of it that we we're just, you know, let loose and we're able to do whatever we wanted to do. And, you know, you don't hear a lot of that these days. And like, I'll, like Lyle said, um, you, like a band wouldn't drop, you know, like nowadays I hear a lot of bands, like they get a sound and it's kind of like, it kind of keeps, you know, they, they find a sound that kind of they're identified with and they keep doing it. And we were trying to like, you know, mix it up as much as possible. Like every record sounds, to me, sounds so different from the one after it or before it. So I don't know. It is. It was kind of like a baby step, but I also love it just because it's kind of its, its own unique thing. I mean, like we were really following the lead of like all the bands we worship, The Clash, and The Jam, and all those bands, and trying to make each record a step. You know, we weren't going for the, uh, you know, the kind of the Ramones thing where we're going to do like three records in a row that are the same. We really wanted to show progress. Like I said earlier, I mean, we we might have went beyond our musical abilities at this point but uh i i, I I'm, I'm proud of it and uh you know i think each record had its own thing and the next record you know uh just the phobia was heavier and um that's more alex's record well you know we can get into that one next time but that's the one that really got the british press excited but we never really got uh the big support here in the states and the press that uh that uh, was uh, it was just elusive to us. We got some good fanzines. There were definitely some zines that were totally into us. And we had always had some good reviews, but uh, we were uh, it wasn't it didn't really um, move the needle as they say these days. Well, I think history has been kind to Dos Domin. Again, I, I really feel like when I listen to this record, I hear so much of what was going to explode in indie rock in the next you know three or four years. You know, I think you guys were definitely ahead of your time. Thank you. Thanks. It's 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 it's, just, it's hard to not be in that moment, but I, I you know thinking what exactly how it was hitting. But uh, thank you for saying that. We appreciate it. Yeah. It's, I remember uh, when I was promoting the record while that this record that KCMU as they were called at the time up in um, Seattle. Um, there was a station, a couple stations, one in Victoria, one in Vancouver. Um, and there was. Um, what was uh, what school was it? There's a school in Portland. Those stations were particularly into this record, and in hindsight, it kind of makes sense considering what you were doing and what was bubbling up in the scene up there at the time. Yeah, that might have been the tour, Jim. You, you might remember. Was that when we played with uh, Green River? Was it that tour? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, you know. So. Uh, yeah, we did a couple of dates with them, and it was weird, like, getting out there and being like, oh, there's bands that are almost, you know, kind of in this wheelhouse already. They were obviously more of a glam, kind of a metal thing, but uh, right. but then they just broke up and formed Mud Honey, who we eventually, you know, we played with them on their first show on the next tour. I think it might have been on that tour, and this is on the internet somewhere, where the guy from Fang saw us, and because uh, we were playing Orange Amps, he went and bought an Orange Amp right afterwards. <laughs> so there is... There is uh, some, yeah, there is some, you know, uh, we definitely left some impression somewhere. So thank you. Are you still playing drums, Lyle? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. In a band? Yep, yep, yep. We, we genre hop all the time. It's an instrumental band. I think it's actually pretty, 
in some ways, uh, an SST <laughs> would have liked it banned. But uh, the Royal Arctic Institute and uh, yeah, the other day, um, someone said regenera hop, and I was like, well, that's very dominant of someone to say to us. So hmm. we'll take it. And sorry, what's the band? Uh, the Royal Arctic Institute. Where can people check that out? Do you have like a band camp that's, or something? Yeah, we're on Bandcamp and uh, you know, Spotify and iTunes and all those things. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we all play. I mean, I saw Phil the other day. I haven't seen Phil in 30 years. And, uh, he uh, he still says he's making music. And, uh, you know, uh, Jim is obviously definitely still very involved in music. And uh, Alex, I'd say, is the, the least involved at this point. But he still loves to, he still loves his guitars. You've never come close to playing another Doss Domin show in the last 20 years? We played one. We played a few songs at uh, Dave Moe, the other bass player, at his uh, at, at his bachelor party. We got together and we played a few songs. So uh, that was uh, that was about it. Yeah. And um, you know, Jim, should we talk about the other thing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, so just recent, just this year, uh, the four of us uh, with Dave, Alex, and uh, Jim and I, we we got together and we recorded a couple of new songs. Oh wow! Just to see what that would be like. And uh, it was very interesting. <laughs> and and yeah. what's the plan, or what was it like? <laughs> are are we going to get to hear them? Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, one song we recorded um, for a a movie. It's going to be a documentary on the uh, the Flaming Groovies. Oh, cool! And we recorded a, a groovy song for the movie, and they did some filming of us in the studio and stuff like that. So, and then we did, um, you know, original stuff. So we'll see, you know, how it all, how it all pans out. But it was, I mean, personally, I, I, it's one of the highlights of the year to, to be with everybody and playing again. It was, it was wonderful. And I've been on a long, slow attempt to re to get the, the masters back from SST and do some issues and all this stuff. And it's been, uh, it's just been brutal. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we're in some legal entanglements, and it's just uh, it's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, so while what's on what's on Spotify and iTunes is that is that the is that SST doing? Yeah, SST did that after I sent them a thing like, "Hey, our stuff isn't on Spotify." <laughs> right. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. So they put it up afterwards. So that was, you know, at least it's up there, and uh, right. it's on, on iTunes and stuff. But uh, I, I love to. I mean, I got all the tapes. We have almost all the sessions that we did back then, and I got them baked. And you know, I was would love to get in there and try to find some, you know, do some remixing and find some other songs with more mistakes, you know, things like that. Yeah. But uh, we haven't really. Uh, it's a big project. It's a so I don't know when that will come to fruition. We're the drivers of it, so it's kind of hard to keep driving it since. Uh, you know, since we're also busy and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a obviously a, a common complaint with with SST is these amazing classic albums. Most other labels by this point would have, you know, reissued a lot of these, put out remastered versions of them um, with bonus tracks, which I'm assuming there are plenty of for Dos Dom and you know, and there's definitely a market for that, and it would be be great to be able to buy this. A lot of this stuff is unavailable in any format, if it even is on Spotify, which 
which thankfully you guys are now. But is there uh, is yeah, there a lot of unreleased stuff? It's frustrating. Is there a lot of unreleased stuff? Yeah, um, like some good live recordings. Oh yeah, we got tons of live stuff and practices. It's a it's a treasure trove of of, of various levels of listenability. Yeah, but like yeah, around the third album, we recorded a whole live set on two inch tape. Or the second album, I don't remember, Jim. Uh, at Seabees. I think it was the third. Right. Yeah. So and then we never put that out. And, um, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. I tried and I reached out to SST. I even was very businessy and was like, can we license the record from you guys and you'll still own the rights. We just want to put a few songs in a compilation to make a best of, and they, uh, have no interest in such things. So it's, uh, it's, uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. Especially when they don't have any interest of doing it in doing it themselves either. Yeah. I don't, you know, what do they have to, I I, I have a feeling that Brian might be more, uh, more knowledge of this. I just have a feeling they're trying to sell the whole catalog to somebody so Mm. they don't want to let anything out that they can keep their hands on. Uh, But that's just, that's just my guess. I have no comment. Yeah. Well, in a way I can't, I can't imagine Greg Ginn selling the catalog. I, okay. I, I, yeah, I'd be super surprised. Yeah, I just don't understand the uptick of of uh, for them to hoard the hoard all those albums. You know, I mean, I know all the top the a lot of the bigger bands got their catalog back, but I know there's angst and leaving trains, and there's a zillion other slovenlies and there's a zillion bands that have, don't have their records. And yeah. They, yeah every, everybody who put out those records, everyone who worked on those records, worked really, really hard. And that they're not letting the bands have them back is uh, is not it's not cool. It's it's, it's not a way to treat a band. Yeah, you know, we worked really hard when we were on that label. We really yeah. did, you know. And uh, the least they can do is respect us and let us have our music. Yeah, and honestly, uh, Brant Lyle's already done. I mean, he's kind of downplaying, but he's already done like a huge amount of work with this whole tape archive we have and having tapes baked and transferred and finding stuff. And, you know, hopefully someday it'll come to some kind of fruition, but he's already, he's done an incredible amount of work already, just kind of archiving stuff and getting it ready for whatever may come next. I'm hoping at some point, you know, everything will shake loose. Yeah. Well, I mean, if not, Maybe we can look forward to um, a Dos Domin rarities compilation of some sort or, or live album. That's definitely, that might be the easiest road. But I really wanted to put, you know, I mean, we've discussed it internally. I really just wanted to put out uh, like 20 of our best songs. Just yeah. so people be like, I don't remember that band, what were they? And just be like, here are, all, here are a bunch of killers. You know, and just uh, and reflect us at a light that if someone needs to refer back to us, they can you know, and then if they want to dig in and listen to do four thousand times while they're taking acid, God bless. Them. But <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but uh, that was kind of my goal at the first point was just to get a, a best of with some rarities and this new song we recorded and try to get something out. You know, and uh, we have tons of photos we've scanned. You know, I told you that Don Standing, who we spoke about earlier, is a photographer. He has a zillion photos, and right. so we have all these great photos that uh, would have been, I don't know what format we would put it out on. 
at this point, you know, digital download with a booklet. I don't know. I don't even know how to cassette. I don't know anymore. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, it's uh, you know, it's definitely, we've talked about it. We're, we've, we've kind of started circling the wagons and it's it just, SST really kind of, you know, shot the air out of the tires. So uh, now we just have to figure out either way to do it without them or, you know, yeah, like with other other takes and other jams and stuff. Right. But I, did, I really want something that would reflect us in the best light possible. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that would be the way to do it. Okay, um, so hopefully if this compilation comes out, what tracks off of this album are going to be on it, would you say? Mm-hmm. I would say at least one should probably be grays and black. Would you agree with that, Lyle? Yep, absolutely. Uh, oh, boy. I thought you were going to say where they all went was the single. That one's got a lot of melody. Yep, that's when we play it all the time. We played that to the end. That was was a constant live live song all the way to the last show. And um, one of the crazy ones, like Trap Trap Door or Name Your Poison or Impact, one of those bad boys. Yeah. There's also a couple, I mean, we didn't really talk about it too much, but uh, there are also some kind of quintessential Alex moments on this uh, (laughs) Record, you know, trapdoor and the impact. Yeah, him saying "What do they want?" I don't know is so haunting in <laughs> that tiny little voice. I remember Wharton doing that, like making it like tiny in the right speaker corner, and it's really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to that last night, and I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, "Fuck, man, that is a frightening <laughs> <laughs> mix of that song." And then, it really and then, is. Then yeah, and then it comes crashing in and you start screaming. I was like, oof, we were having a bad day that day. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I was listening to that because, you know, usually with Alex and I, like songs, every once, occasionally, like normally we would, you know, Lyle wrote a lot of lyrics also, but Alex and I would kind of sing the song that we wrote the most lyrics on. Okay. And occasionally i don't remember what the artistic choice was i would sing some lyrics that alex wrote and that yeah that song kind of freaked me out i was listening to it last night with the (laughs) really streamy vocal and the the ghost i was like kind of i was like wow i I don't know it just kind of freaked me out we didn't do that often i I don't know what what zone we were in when we did that but we're definitely somewhere else i was trying to figure out what who the they uh, who who they are like, you know, what the lyric is referring to. I was like, seems too, it's, it just seems too mean and too angry to be just about, you know, your, your, your pet, you know, like, what if I can't want? I don't know. You know, it, it seems a little too, uh, seems a little too over the top to just be something like that. So I, I, I would love to go back to the time machine and figure out what inspired that bit of insanity. Cause yeah, when we come crashing in, I was like, woof. We, yeah. uh, we really don't know what they want. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so uh, we really didn't know. <laughs> we really did not know. We had no clue. <laughs> Brian, what uh, if you were going to pick a song? What would you pick? Uh, well, I mentioned "Do" already. That such a kind of a ghostly song, unique song for you guys. But I mean, as mentioned, where they all went was a live standard for you guys and it was always a great song and it was it, it got better than the recorded version here on jupiter eye since you played it out so much 
Um, I would definitely in- include that. Yeah. Hey, Jim, you should tell the Lanigan Grays and Black story. Okay, um, sure. I recently uh, went down to the Shaky Knees Festival in Atlanta to um, see my friends at Danny Warhol's play, and uh, Mark Lanigan was playing, and I hadn't talked to Mark. You know, we did so much touring with the uh, Screaming Trees and stuff, and I hadn't seen Mark in so long, and I know he has, you know, had a long road and everything, and then I, I saw him, and it was really wonderful to reconnect with him, and he was so lovely and awesome, and his wife was fantastic, and uh, we have been kind of, you know, texting and stuff and kind of reconnecting, and he told me that he was always a big fan, fan of ours and was always so complimentary and supportive, and he told me... Um, one of the songs that he wrote was kind of inspired by Gray Isn't Black. And I was I, th- I took that as such a, I'm going to look it up right now, um, such a high compliment because his records are so great. No, I, thought, I think it's called Gray Isn't Black. Hold on, I will tell you. Uh, it's called Gray Goes Black. Okay. Oh, Gray Goes Black, yeah. And he said it was, it, it was kind of like inspired by, you know, uh, Gray Isn't Black, which I... You know, I was very flattered. I'm kidding. I didn't. I didn't hear it when I listened to it. The chorus was on three. I didn't hear anything like that. But, yeah, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful <laughs> song. I, I didn't. Yeah, it's a beautiful connection. song. Yeah. I didn't hear the connection, but I mean, I'll I'll certainly take that. That was that was amazing. Absolutely. Okay, here's a fun fact. Here's another fun fact about that jam. If you listen to, there's a organ at the end, right, Jim? You remember? Yeah. You know, there's an organ sustaining, and I was thinking that if that was my ace tone. That we it used that was then that then that's the one that Yellow Tango used on Painful. So there's the uh, first recorded evidence of that, that keyboard. <laughs> so there you go. So yeah, cause they they shared they shared a practice space with us and they ended up using that keyboard. Ah, so there you go. Um, I, I forgot about that keyboard over until I listened the other day. You played that right? Yeah, I probably crushed those two notes. <laughs> there's a few it sounds like there's a few keys keys on here kind of almost doubling the guitar so they're hard to pick out only the tapes know at this point <laughs> the memories aren't so good yeah so I think there were a couple not not a lot i think i think a lot of it is just uh all the kind of the crazy overlap like the harmonic overtones of all the guitars and the bass and all the distortion so i, I don't think there were a lot of keyboards mm. but I, Maybe maybe a few maybe 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 you rocked out the ace town on a couple of jams. I don't I don't I don't see any credit, so I don't, I don't it doesn't say which song. Yeah, so we'll just have to listen closer. Hey, you guys! Thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Of course, thanks for having. Thank us. you. Thank yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for keeping the dream alive. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. One hundred percent. Yes, indeed. You guys take care. Right, hey, bye, bye, buddy. Yep. Bye, bye. All right. Couldn't be happier to have those guys on again. Yeah, great guys. And thanks to Jim. Jim set that whole thing up. Like, I don't have the wherewithal to set up a conference call. Like, all three of those guys are on separate phone lines, and Jim made that happen, so. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And we uh, we definitely got some great scoops in that one, too, hey? Yeah, you want to talk about it? I kind of picked out my favorite stuff, as usual. Yeah, go for it. Okay, let's see here. Um, well, the first thing that came to mind is they mentioned recording this at Fun City with Wharton Tears, which is where we're going to be going 
I think, next week, actually, for Confusion is Sex with Sonic Youth. So back-to-back Wharton Tears Fun City albums on SST. Kind of a co- neat coincidence there. Yeah, it's interesting to hear them talk about Wharton because when you read up on this record, a lot of people are kind of critical of the production. And and they were a little bit too, I suppose, or just kind of, I guess, maybe not critical of the production, but really wanting to, you know, get the tapes and remaster it and all that kind of stuff. But I did appreciate their comments about Wharton, about how he was patient and kind of let them do their own thing. And that's a really good producer for Dust Domin, if you ask me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If they would have had a producer who wanted to put his put his two cents in it, the album wouldn't sound like it does, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking about, like, the levels and and that stuff, and I love how, for example, the bass just comes through in certain spots in this record. Love oh, yeah. it. Yeah. The new music seminar story that uh, Spaceman Michael Whitaker first told us about. Oh, yeah. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Brant, they're recording new music. Come on. Yeah, that was cool. Part of it, one of it's for a Flamin' Groovies documentary, which is really cool. Yeah, I was really happy to hear that because the last time we had Jim, and then at that time it was Alex on, you know, Alex was talking about, you know, how he, you know, wish he had more people to play with. And I'm I'm really happy to hear that he's back playing with Dos Domin. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was really cool to hear uh, Brian because I like... I really like hearing people, you know, from people that worked at the label and and not just bands all the time. And uh, he's talking about Ifen, which is 20 episodes away, Ryan. Oh, God. Going to number one on college radio. <laughs> yeah. So That's amazing. You know, I was thinking about that. Like, people will say that the golden era of SST is over, you know, because of, like, the Meat Puppets, like Meat Puppets 2 and... Up on the Sun and Zen Arcade and Double Nickels and Damaged and Eye Against the Eye and all those records being done, you know? But oh, like, yeah. we've still got Sonic Youth Sister, Dinosaur Jr. There's some uh, some pretty famous albums still coming, still to come. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to get into Firehose again. <laughs> yep. yep. Love that record. Lyle's theory that Greg Ginn might want to sell the entire SST catalog. Kind of sounds like there's no way in hell that Greg would let it go. I think there's some truth to that. That he might want to? No, that he would not want to. Do you think that Greg is holding out for some big payout? I have no idea. I don't know. I I mean, I'm just guessing. Who knows? Is true. Yeah. Well, it's hard to hear, you know, an artist that is clearly frustrated that, you know, all the work they put in and stuff that they're proud of, that they want people to hear, especially a band like Das Dahlman, who clearly have a lot of unreleased material and want to to put it out there. Like, I think Lyle's idea is great, is a really good one of doing like a best of Das Dahlman compilation. Yeah, because they're somewhat, they are a band that really deserves to be revisited and article after article. And we said this when we did Dostomin 
the first episode on them is that they were just so ahead of their time by like three to five years. If they were three to five years later, who knows, right? On that subject, Ryan, I want to just talk about the sound of this record because I found some some reviews. You probably read the same ones. Well, one of the first things I'll point out is I think it was Lyle in the interview talking about how they're try- they were trying to mix up their sound on each record. Clearly, like, you know, the bands that they admired did that. Yep. And that's what they wanted to do, too. Here's a, you probably read this one, Ryan, Steve Huey on All Music. A highly improvisational record that nodded to the spaced out acid jams of the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't find that one. I found that uh, same Dave Lang article again, though. I reread that one. Oh, yeah. On Lexicon Devil, that old blog that he used to have anything good in there um yeah i mean you know that article in defense of swa yeah this article that dave lang wrote is kind of like in defense of dust domin i guess oh really it's, i don't yeah, know if i've well, ever really, i don't know if i've ever seen that one yeah i mean i guess really what he's doing is he's making the case for dust domin as being you know he's not saying like look they're not um they're not all those bands that you were just listing off, you know, Black Flag, Minutemen, you know, the Golden Age. That's not who they are. But they're also not throwaways. Yeah. There's a good there's a good quote in here where he says, um, and the first thing I'd like to say is that the band known as Das Domin, one whom I recall being mercilessly derided by the likes of Steve Albini at the time. Nice one, Steve, but I tried re-listening to Big Black a few years back, and it merely sounded like a Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson tribute act. Sorry. (laughs) Das Domin were not an nth-rate act. Certainly not A-grade, for sure, but one I can still listen to in 09. This was written in 2009, a good 21 years after I first bought the record's of theirs that I own. 1987's Jupiter Eye and 88's Triskaidekaphobia. And that's got to be saying something. And then he says, and as for the supposedly poor production, it sounds fine to me. Maybe Jim, Jim Steinman was on holidays or something. <laughs> that, that's the meatloaf guy. And then he concludes by saying, which I was saying this a moment ago, had the band released these albums five years later, when the general marketplace was a little more open to all things loud, fuzzy, distorted, and long-haired, they might have even sold a few records. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think Steve Albini regrets some of that stuff? Oh, all of his off-the-cuff complaining about bands that weren't his own? Yeah. I don't think so. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Hey, Ryan, before we go in to talk about the tracks... There's a few other things I wanted to mention here. Just on some of the other things that the the guys in the band have done. Oh, yeah. Musically. Jim, I think Jim, I'm not sure if he mentions it in this interview, but he mentioned it in the last one. He's married to B.B. Buell, and he's been playing in her band for many years, and they released an album in 2018 called Bearing It All, Greetings from Nashbury Park. Lyle, who was in uh, that punk band, uh, The Misguided, with Alex, that we probably talked about last time, I'm pretty sure. 
I f- we did. Yep. Lyle has a band, Ryan, that you should check out if you haven't. Uh, they're called, I think he mentions this in the, in the interview, Royal Arctic Institute. Yep, I've got it. You have it, yeah. I figured you might because it's Gerard Smith from Phantom Tollbooth, who I know you're a big fan of. Yeah, and, man. And John Leon, who was in a band called The Summer Wardrobe, uh, which is, was a psych rock band with ex-agnostic front guitarist John Sanchez. If anybody does want to check them out, they have a Bandcamp page. They have a couple full-length releases, the latest being last year's Accidental Achievement. And they describe themselves as instrumental post-punk cinematic jazz. Very apt. I would I would agree. The one other thing I wanted to mention, Ryan, was have you ever heard of the Dr. Janet 7-inch? Yeah, with uh, Screaming Trees guys, right? I've yeah. got that. Yeah. So it's kind of a almost an SST supergroup. It's good. Yeah, it's it, good if it's, you ever check, like you ever, ever find it. It is good. It's uh, Gary Lee Connor. The A side was written by Gary Gary Lee too, uh, from the Screaming Trees. It's on this label called Ringers Lactate. Uh, Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango, uh, and he also has an SST connection through working with uh, the band Mofungo, which we'll be hearing in about a hundred episodes. Matt Sweeney this is probably why you have it because I know you're a big fan of uh, what's his band Cortez oh Chavez Chavez, yeah yeah you mean Chavez yeah you like I got it because of yeah oh yeah Uh, but I got I got it because of Gary Lee too yeah Matt Sweeney's played in a zillion bands he played with Iggy Pop. He's played. He played. I think he helped make that Probot album with Dave Grohl. He's in a band called Skunk, that has a cup like a full length and a EP on Twin Tone. Yep, got him. The EP uh, has an SST connection. Sim Kane uh, plays some percussion on it, and it was produced by Andrew Weiss. I think both of their that and the full length were too. And of course, Gary Lee Connor uh, played in the Screaming Trees who had stuff on SST, and also The Purple Outside, which had a really good album on New Alliance. And the Dead Wax... Oh, the, the B-side is a... It, uh, on this single is a cover of the records song, Starry Eyes. Yeah, you can pick it up for like a buck anywhere. Yeah. No one, no one knows what it is, and so you can get it cheap. Let's talk about the tracks, Ryan. Yeah, man. History Lesson Part 2. So before you take us track by track, or I do, whoever, there's two things I want to mention real quick about this record brand. Okay. One is this record is a cutout for me, the LP that I have. I just, I got to think that a lot of Dos Domin records were cutouts and a lot of our articles that I could find like mentioned about how they were a cutout band, you know? Yep. And you can definitely still find their stuff for very, very reasonable prices. And it's not hard to find. And so I just encourage everyone to get it. And the other thing that came to my mind was I kind of like cutouts these days because I like knowing that I've rescued something that's <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I've had this record for a long time. I just don't know where I got it from and the cutout bin. The second thing, though, that I wanted to mention is that for some reason, and I'll mention it maybe a couple of times when we're going through the tracks, but 
like never before when listening to this record and I listened to it a lot this week I was reminded of a lot of Canadian bands okay. for some reason like like, like the Nils like the Doughboys like uh, even the later kind of Doughboys related band Rusty and because I was just thinking a lot about how these guys were ahead of their time and thinking about okay who is out there or you know who arose in the 90s that maybe were influenced by these guys mm. but for some reason on this record especially i think it's the backing vocals this time really it just it kind of had a similar vibe to the early doughboys records and uh maybe just some the of way those that halifax the, bands now that you say that like yeah yeah like hardship post or something kind of the lo-fi grungy sound yeah exactly yeah uh, or eric's trip yeah or something like psychedelic like side b on this record is ultra psychedelic right yeah so i don't know i don't know what that all means but it's i kept on hearing it when i was listening to this record and i've got one ultra obscure canadian reference for you when we go through the tracks it's a test for you actually oh boy okay let's go then side nemad nemad what yeah <laughs> Nemad, yes. Yep. The, yeah. Is oh. uh okay, so the first track is Great Isn't Black. Great opener. The opening riff to this makes me think of the song Piss Bottle Man. Oh yeah, that's a great song too. Yep. It's kind of the same riff. Great or- yeah. Great organ, great bass, great noisy song. It sounds really garagey actually to me with that ace tone, which they were talking about in the interview. Yeah. Yep. And then the fuzz guitars. And also in the interview was when they were mentioning, you know, like, I don't know what that instrument is. That organ sound could be, you know, maybe that's the eight string bass with some sort of chorus pedal or something. I don't know. Well, this was the one they specifically mentioned that was used by Yola Tango. The organ. The ace tone, yeah. Yeah. And this is the song that where they talk about Mark Lanigan in the interview. Yeah, Mark... I think use just the song title as some inspiration, perhaps not exactly the music. Good track though. What's the next one, Ryan? Quarter after eight. And here's your test brand. Okay. So this song is an instro, right? Yep. And it kind of starts with some, some bass chords. Okay. And I secretly sent you a bit of a reminder earlier this week on, I tweeted you a picture. And I wonder if that will jog your memory. I'm trying to remember what picture you sent me. Do I get to look on my phone? You can. <laughs> okay, give me one second. I, I want to see if you'll hear it, just like I do. Oh, Throbbing Hoods. <laughs> yeah. What song? What song? What song is it? Can you hear it? What's the track? I can't see on this picture. No, no, no! It's not on the picture, but I want oh. you to like think. So it's it's a it's a band out yep. of Canada called Throbbing Hood. Super obscure band. <laughs> Super obscure. The album is called Ambush, and there is a song on it that starts with a like bass cording that's to my ears very similar to this. Oh, jeez! Can, can you name that song, Brant? I haven't listened to that album in years, man. Is it uh, is it a song called Sault Ste. Marie? 
It definitely is. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. There. That one's for you. That dude from the Throbin Hoods had the coolest leather pants I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy wore a top hat too, didn't he, or something? Sounds right. Like a bolo hat or something? He I don't know. <laughs> the, throb, anyway. the Throbin Hoods. Yeah, so now you're going to listen to Sault Ste. Marie and tell me whether uh, I, you hear it as well. All right. Uh, quarter after eight, great intro for me. Totally fits the band, fits the, this album in particular, and uh, very interesting key changes in it as well, like uh, playing the riff repeatedly, but then just instantly and a number of times in a row. Yeah. changing the uh the this the key which i think has a very cool effect for me it definitely has that sst sound to it oh yeah i think in the interview they mentioned that this was based on a phil idea what's phil's full name again ryan uh what von trapp or whatever it is isn't it phil <laughs> leopold von trapp well on this one it's i think it's like p ludwig bun shoosh or something like that <laughs> yeah I mean he played like a seven string bass or something right well I think it's actually eight but yes and uh, but I mean very very creative bass playing I love the riffs on this record yeah, so totally he definitely makes the sound alright next song Trap Door and for me again I don't know what it is, but I just heard like the Doughboys again. Mm. I'm like the bass sound on this song. Great. The tempo changes. Great. And an epic ending on this song. Yeah, it's a really interesting song. It kind of goes from like a standard verse chorus thing into like a breakdown into a jam that kind of takes out the rest of the track and it never really returns to the to any kind of verse or chorus. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Next is probably one of their, the, actually the last two tracks on this side are pretty melodic as well. Track number four, Where They All Went. And for me, the standout, in addition to it being really catchy, again, is the bass playing for me. Very indie rock sounding. Oh, yeah. Husker Du, Dinosaur Jr., Built to Spill, I really heard. You know? Ah, I didn't think of that. Maybe. Probably, Maybe. you know, we're influenced by Dos Dom, and I bet. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. They probably, you know, bought this record when it came out or a few years later in the cutout bin, right? Yep. Final track on this side is Name Your Poison. And this has got that killer lyric, I'm not coming to see you. Get a taste of your own medicine at the end. Yeah. yeah Love I that. I wrote that down too. Again, I hate comparing them to other bands, but you really can't help it because they really did... I think it's a cliche, but it's true. They were ahead of their time. And I, to me, when I heard this one, I heard Super Chunk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Contemporaries for some time, but a couple of years ahead. All right, well, flip it over to, it's, you know, you caught me off guard because you're looking at the label and, and it says, you know, side Nemad or Nemad. Yeah. And then on... Um, side that's on the actual like record label yeah. and then on side side b it's called side sad yeah 
But on the actual jacket, it's side A is side gray and side B is side black. Hmm. So I wasn't, I, I kind of missed it there. But um, the first track on side B, what do they want? I don't know. It's impasse. Haunting lyrics. Uh, the, the drum pattern during the intro to this, I kept waiting for Jello Biafra to, to yell out, Lard! <laughs> <laughs> off Last Temptation of Reed? Yeah, well, whatever song it's on, off of, is it off there or is it off the Power of Lard EP? Or the set, yeah. Or was that one self-titled? I can't remember. Oh, shoot, now I got to listen to Lard. <laughs> it sounds a lot like that drum pattern. Oh, okay. Yep. The song ends with like two slight returns, hey? Yeah. Yep. And one has flanger on it, which is an underused effect pedal, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Great song, though. Like, this, this song really kicks off the psychedelic side for me. Yeah. For sure. Uh, the next song is Rain Dance, like a pulsing instro. Yeah. Phil is all over the neck on this one. Actually, I didn't send this to you, Ryan, but I will. Jim uh, sent me a bitch and live version of this track from a Variety Arts Center show in LA from June 19th, 1987. And people were digging it, man. The crowds, yeah. The crowd's just cheering. Yeah, well, these guys could play, and I bet you they were really loud, too. Oh, yeah. You almost couldn't do a band like this without volume. Yeah. All right. Uh, track number three on this side, the song Do, Ultra Psychedelic. Yeah. What an interesting song. Uh, the part that I would call the chorus on this wouldn't have sounded out of place on the final Firehose album to me. Mystery Machinery Operator? Yep. Really? Interesting. I think you're you just mixed up Canadian bands and the album of that the name of that Firehose album though. Did I say Mystery Machinery Operator? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of Mr. <laughs> I mean Mr. Machinery Operator. <laughs> yeah. I love how the they layered the vocals on this. I believe they mentioned in the interview that it's Jim doing the talking part. To me, this song sounds like something that could have just come out. Like it sounds, oh, yeah. it sounds current. There are bands that are ripping like this these days. And by the way, now that you mention it, I wouldn't be surprised if the Canadian band Mystery Machine was were Dos Domin fans. Could be, but I think you mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, all right, the last song on the record, "Girl with the Hair." This, for me, is another psych Husker Du song. Great closer to the record. It totally fits. And I will say, after listening to the interview and after getting uh, a couple of these Dinosaur Jr. reissues with like the bonus discs, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just dying for a Jupiter Eye bonus disc, man, after oh. this song's done. Yeah. Dying. Yeah, this is a cool indie rocker with a Mud Honey style freak out at the end. <laughs> the uh the album cover is this weird almost like watercolor tile type of background with like lipstick 
drawn Dos Domin with this also weird kind of like school desk chair thing in purple. And and then uh, I think the guys on the interview were mentioning like the top right hand looks almost like a cutout bin punch out. I was kind of thinking like maybe that's the Jupiter eye. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, um, I can't describe it any better than you just did. And then the the back cover, ha- it looks like more kind of watercolor dripped all over though with photos with some weird effect on it and paint splotches, handwritten credits. Um, it's good. It totally suits the band. It says, again, recorded at Fun City, Wharton Tears, produced by The Domin and Wharton. Extra special thanks to Don Standing. Cool to mention him in the interview. And photos by D. Ennis. In the interview, did it mention, I think it mentioned who did the cover, right? I think it was Phil and his girlfriend is what they say. Debbie, I think maybe is, was her name. Yeah, on the back here, it almost looks like like E to the square root of I. It's hard to read some of it. Yeah, or maybe it's, yeah, it looks like an equation, I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we have some photos, though, that the band sent. Some exclusive pics we're going to be posting. Nice. And uh, for the band names, we also mentioned um, Phil Ludwig, Bunshush or something like that, Lyle Heisen, Jim Walters, and then Alex, he's uh, switched out Totino for Alex C. Monday on the back. Hmm. Hey, when I was going through, like, I usually scour the internet trying to find stuff we can post, you know, for the week that the episode comes out. I found a poster for SST Midwest Rock Fest. That was the name of the show. It was DC3, Painted Willy, Tar Babies, and Dos Domin. Pretty sure that's a Jordan Schwartz show that he put together. How about that, eh? What a package. What a package. Yeah. And then I found this zine that I totally want to track down called Flesh and Bones, a New Jersey zine. The one issue has an article on St. Vitus, an article on Green River, and it and it says on the cover it has a Dos Domin tour diary. Ooh. <laughs> I wonder what that's like. I wonder if it would be actually like really tame and just be describing weird things at the, the venues. I don't know. If anybody listening to this has that zine, you should like take a picture of it. Or scan it. Scan the Dos Domin Tour Diary. And the St. Vitus interview too. And email it to us at MoJackPod. Or you could go to the mimeographer and telex it to Brandt. Do that. What he, <laughs> <laughs> what he said. <laughs> Mojack, some... MoJackPod at gmail.com. I need to read that tour diary. Do you, uh, you want to hear some dead wax? Hell yeah. So side Nemad says the nine-headed hydra of love that's pretty wicked yep um i feel like i have to mention too that it says k disc on here j g brandt hmm. j g thurwell maybe mm, maybe maybe no I, and then, <laughs> I don't think so well i thought that that i thought that j g would mean um 
what the hell was the guy's name that did all the mastering at K-Disc? Jim Golden. Yeah, exactly, man. That's the dude. I thought you were going to be golden all over ma- that. Golden mastering. I thought you were going to be all over okay, that. Okay, starting now. <laughs> where, were you, where were you on that, man? Uh, side B says, love me do. And here you go, Brent. I'll set you up again. It says K-Disc JG. No idea. <laughs> All right, anything else? Ballot result. Ballot result. Hey, Brent, why don't you pick? No, why don't you pick? <laughs> I uh, I actually had a hard time. I would have went with, like, grays and black or name your poison, maybe even do, because it's such a cool tune, but I would be going with where they all went for yeah. sure. It's a pretty awesome song, man. Yeah. Yeah. Killer stuff. Love the Domin. Can't wait to uh, go deep into the Jupiter Eye on the next release by them. Yeah. Ryan, what are we doing next week? We're going to revisit one of Brant's faves in particular. It's SST96, the Sonic Youth album, Confusion is Sex. Right on. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.